I don't think people understand the degree to which this is going to be seismic because we're talking about entire industries collapsing. Like Apple's investing a huge amount of money in this. Why? If they don't win, they're out of business. You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Neil Postman. People will come to adore the technologies that undo their capacity to think. My guest today, Cal Newport, is a fan of Neil Postman's and in some ways maybe his successor. Cal's an associate professor of computer science at Georgetown University. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of seven books, including his three latest, A World Without Email, Digital Minimalism, and Deep Work. You can sense a theme there. Newport's also a contributing writer for The New Yorker and the host of the Deep Questions podcast. Cal, welcome back to the Elevate podcast. Uh, well, thanks for having me. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's been a minute. And I, I know we spent most of your, your last appearance on the show talking about your background, uh, several of your books. I definitely encourage all the listeners to check that episode out. It was number 133. But for the guests coming back for whom it's been a pandemic, I always like to ask, what what major life and work changes have you enacted You know, since March 2020? When was, by the way, episode 133? Was this right early pandemic? I'm, I was trying to remember. I think it was right before or right as it was starting and no one knew. I, I can look up the date, but it won't tell me the recording dates. So I'd have to go look through the files for that. Right. So it's a podcast where we recorded it right before the pandemic and I was probably making lots of strong pronouncements about, well, the one thing we don't have to worry about <laughs> yeah. is any major crisis. And then well, I, I think you different. said this is just something that's contained in China. You know, I remember that. No, yeah, no. I was like, it's just the <laughs> flu, Robert. Come on. <laughs> so how has it changed your work? How has it changed kind of what, what you've seen in the last couple of years? Well, I think the the biggest thing that came you know, early on in the pandemic in my work is I switched for about a month to writing an essay every day. So it was just my response to the disruption. I wanted to be talking to my readers. I was feeling cut off from the world otherwise. And so I began working out a lot of thinking live, almost near live and writing these essays one after another, one after another. I was doing that for my, my email newsletter. And themes emerged out of that that were not on my radar were not things I was working on. And in particular, a theme that emerged early on was this idea of the deep life. So I, I found myself March, April, 2020, starting to talk more about, well, what is this thing that we know it when we see it? When we see someone living a quote unquote deep life, it resonates. We feel admiration, we feel aspiration, but we have a hard time pinning down what is it that they're doing that makes that life so compelling how could I systematically replicate that in my own life? Early pandemic, I became really interested in that topic and began writing about that topic, trying to break down what are the components of a deep life? How do you take your life and systematically build it into something where you really made use of the time you actually have that is interesting to live, it's impactful to live, it, it leaves a footprint on the world, that day to day, there's some remarkability to it. None of that was on my radar. The pandemic injected that into my life. And then that pushed what was happening in my life in directions that would not have happened without the pandemic. Uh, first, I began much more intentionally crafting my life and the professional portions of my life. Up to that point, it's, hey, I'm, I'm a professor and a writer. I'm at Georgetown. I'm writing papers. I write books on the side. 
the disruption of the pandemic and thinking about the deep life, I began to embellish and intentionally cultivate the writing side of my life. I leased office space where I am right now. I started a podcast. I, I began to think through a, a, a bigger presence in the world for my writing than just you know my books coming out. Then I sold a book proposal for a book about the deep life that, that's on the horizon. Um, so that's what I focus on, deep life. That was not on a February 2020 Cal Newport radar and takes up a lot of the screen right now. So it was interesting. I just looked it up. It was actually November. The recording was November 2019. So I was close. We were in the in that sweet spot. What's interesting though is, but you're always someone who's focused on productivity and quiet work. I'm guessing even before this, you had more discipline and were not necessarily running around and traveling like crazy. So I'm guessing your physical, other than teaching in a class, physical environment didn't change that much. Although it sounds like your viewpoint of it, you know, changed a lot. Because I know a lot of people who were on planes you know, every week of the year. And so for them, it was just a total, you know, they were not used to quiet work in any way. Well, yeah, I mean, that's true. I'm not, I travel all the time. I'm not a, a road warrior, Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's still, it still had impact. So first of all, space, right? I mean, what, what became more a subject of thought when it came to our professional life during the early pandemic than the power of specific spaces, right? And And so early, early on in the pandemic, I remember my friend Ryan Holiday, the writer Ryan Holiday, was texting me pictures because he had he had bought the building where his bookstore is painted ports. He had bought that building in a move of great real estate savvy right before the pandemic began. Uh, so he was there during the early pandemic. He's like, look, I have this building. I mean, obviously the bookstores could be delayed, but he was working out of this building. He had this space, and that really caught my attention. Then we uh, we rented rented some property. My family rented some property early on. We live in a close in suburb and we rented some property in the countryside, basically yeah. Southern Maryland on a river, 60 acres. It's a weird piece of property. It was a grass airstrip surrounded by woods. At the end of the, uh, the airstrip, there was a riverfront and there had golf carts on the property you could use to drive. It's you know a half mile to get down to the waterfront. And so we were retreating to the countryside as well with the family. And so space took up a, a a new importance for me before, but like, what's the matter? I can, I have a house. I can find a place to write. I, you know, I can write at, at the office and everything is fine. And I got more into the poetics of space and during the pandemic of, wait a second, having a space that's your own, how it looks, you know, uh, taking care to how you, you decorate. There's a, there's a philosophical value that you're spending money on space that cultivates depth and thinking is actually not a waste of money, but maybe that's a good business expense. Maybe we, need more land as a family. So those type of questions, that's a shift for me. It wasn't on my radar before. It's interesting. I mean, we, we had been a remote company for, for 14 years. Obviously, you know, I used to joke that before the pandemic, for a while, as we were working with big brands, we would kind of hide the fact that we were all distributed, you know, and, and then soon I was writing books about it uh, during COVID and, and talking about it. But we, we always said to people too, and, and we had had a lot of years in practicing kind of working from home and that that there really was a value of a separate space. That if you blurred your, if you brought your computer to the kitchen table or you brought it into bed and you didn't have these clear separations, the boundaries would kind of fall away. And I know people had to make good during COVID under unideal situations, but I would even say to them, look, even if you're stuck in a studio, put the table in the corner and that's your <laughs> that's your workspace. And then when you leave, I know people that would change their clothes. You know, they come out of the office, they change change from kind of Clark Kent to Superman and and, and that there was real psychological 
value to that. I think the people who struggled with any barriers couldn't separate their personal space from their workspace. Well, and just to add on to that, I, I wrote an article for The Yorker about this about halfway through the pandemic, where I introduced the notion of what I called work from near home, so WFNH. And the, the setup for the article is that study the working habits of professional writers. Yeah. Who have been work from home experts for you know forever, right? I mean, novelists, yeah. nonfiction, right? They work from home, right? They don't have an office to go to. And I gave example after example of these professional writers who had really nice houses, they had perfectly serviceable home offices from a functional perspective. And they would go out of their way to find a different space near their home to work. And these weren't nice places. So I just to give one example, Peter Benchley, who wrote Jaws. When he wrote Jaws, he lived at a house that's just maybe a block from where I grew up. So, you know, when I was there, he didn't live there anymore, but the Jaws house, as we called it, was down the street. Beautiful carriage house on a half acre of property. When he was writing Jaws, he lived at that house. He did not write in the beautiful carriage house on a half acre of property. He rented space at what was a furnace repair factory, essentially. I walked down and, and took a picture of the spot that the old building is still there. It's in a more industrialized section of my small town. An incredibly noisy place. We talked to his wife. You know, Peter's dead now. We talked to his wife to sort of fact check this. It was a very noisy place. It was not aesthetically pleasing. It wasn't more functional, but it was different. And so he could go there and be in the writing mindset. So I've been a big advocate of that. I mean, there, there's lots of things when it comes to work where we don't even think twice about investing a lot of money. Oh, my work's kind of far away. So let me you know, lease a new car so I can get back and forth in comfort or pay for the parking garage or I need to buy new outfits. And, like, there's a lot of things we spend money on. But the idea of like maybe we need to invest and companies should help here in having a space near my home that's not my home where I can do remote work. We're like, oh, that seems superfluous, yeah. but it could make a huge difference. Yeah, it doesn't. It sounds like it's not. It's not even necessarily that it's fancy. It's that it's different, and it you associate it with that's what you're doing there, right? That's yep. it. You're in that mode. What What is your writing sort of practice or habit been, or did it change? Well, it, it did change. Um, so we had a, I don't know what you call it, like a, a study type room in our house yeah. that disappeared during the. 2020, 2021 uh, school year because became a classroom. Became a classroom. <laughs> yeah, we emptied it out. We brought in whiteboards. We brought in desks. <laughs> it became a classroom. And I was I was a uh, homeless as a writer, so I would write outside on our porch. I'd write here at my offices. So I started leasing these offices for my the right, media yeah. company surrounding it. And then once the kids were back in school, uh, we went and I renovated that whole room. And now it's a library slash study that is built around writing. So the, the key thing is I had a writing table built by a company up in Maine that specializes in writing tables for college libraries. And they like built, big wood table. Yeah. yeah. So they built yeah. a small version okay. that fits and had built-in bookcases. And we have, you know, those brass lights that shine down on the I, I can picture this room. This is like, yeah, it feels, feels like an Ivy League library or something. A hundred percent. It's art from an artist. Your eyes just lit up when I said that. I was like, I got your vibe. Yeah. Well, that's actually what we're going for. Because I went to an Ivy League college <laughs> and had a, a memory of a very specific library reading yeah. Study room. It's called the Tower Room in Baker Library for any Dartmouth people out there. So I actually did have that. I actually did have that in mind. Uh, and do you so only we, write in there? Like, do you I not only, do it? You only yeah. write in there. Interesting. I write in there. So it's all real specific. I write in there first thing every morning. As a family, we read in there. And then there's a table, a game table on the other side. So we also play games in there. That's all that room is for. No permanent screens in that room. 
you can bring a laptop in there to write, but there's no permanent yeah. computers. There's no TV screens. And so it's just separating it out. And then I come here, the podcast, to do interviews, to work on the business side of being a writer. I've physically separated that. So I'm at my offices for that. So it's all about space. And again, I don't think I would have thought so much about space pre-pandemic. Yeah. So as we talked last time, the great irony is you, you do a lot of your writing on social media, but you're not on social media. <laughs> so you're very disciplined with avoiding distractions, particularly technology. I think this is a huge struggle for everyone these days. And I think it just made worse in the pandemic. People got drawn into it and it's all negative. And somehow we're all you know, yelling uh, at each other. Like, how have you structured your environment and for your kids and family to kind of maximize that sort of the deep work time and to not get distracted by what's going on in that in that world? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I did an interview early in the pandemic in March. I did an interview with GQ that was talking about, okay, uh, hey, you just wrote this at the time I'd written this book, Digital Minimalism, that we talked about last time I was on the show, which is about social media relationships with yeah. the phone. And they're asking about how this can be relevant for the pandemic. And I said, look, in my opinion, one of the, the biggest single public health moves we could make right now in March of 2020 would be to shut down Twitter. And I mean it from a public mental health perspective. If we shut right. down Twitter, I think we're going to have, and, and I think that somewhat facetious remark was borne out. I, I think Twitter and other social media in particular was a source of significant injected straight into my veins anxiety. Yeah. The way the implicit distributed curation works, especially on a platform like Twitter, where it's really cybernetic. So it's driven by hundreds of thousands of individual retweet decisions that are really good at amplifying through the power law topology of that follower graph, like what's actually catching people's attention. It's not a brilliant algorithm that's sitting there trying to study these tweets. It's the humans are the main input to this algorithm. It's the distributed impact of a hundred thousand different retweet decisions that does a great job of sorting out what's going to grab that attention. And when it came to things like the pandemic, when it came to things like the American presidential election, right. and, the, uh, and these aren't, these aren't feel good things. They're, they're not feel good things. And it, yeah. it put people into a fetal position. I mean, it really was. And so I'm a big advocate right now. I'm telling people it's time to take a break. It's time to take a break from online news. It's time to take a break from social media. If you're using social media for your business, just use it for your business. It should be boring. It should be three times a week. I'm logging on on my desktop computer to post the thread, the Twitter thread that I right. wrote. Share my out, article. Yeah. Share my article and am out of there because it has messed with our nervous systems. I don't think people understand the degree to which it's having a major impact on our actual experience of the world. I think we really need a extended period of detox. We should be pretty severe about it. I, I couldn't agree more. I, I mean, talking to people over the last couple of years, and I wrote this in a Friday forward a month or two ago, when, I noticed when they had a really bad day, I'd say whatever their poison was, but have you been watching like a ton of news? <laughs> and they, the answer would always be yes. Right. And they're watching it for four or five hours. And you know, I thought back to I was in I was in London this summer. I shared the example uh, touring the, the the Churchill War Rooms, and you know, it reminded me they always talked about that. You know, Londoners survived the the Blitz because they woke up every day, and ninety nine percent of them were fine and alive. And so eventually, you actually you sort of harden around that, and you're like, all right, I can go on and and do my thing. Like, you know, someone died, but I survived. And I was like, imagine if they were getting tweets of every dead body like every day during that time the people who actually weren't affected would be terrorized and they'd probably be speaking german in london you know at, the, exactly. at this point yeah. sometimes it's really helpful not to know um there was an example i pulled too around um 
I don't know if you've ever looked at this one, but it's really interesting on whether, you know, when they put all the missing kids on milk cartons. Yeah. I, I don't think it did. It may have helped like help co-solve one case, but often these were years after, you know, or months after, but, but it literally, I think terrorized the whole generation of, of people into not letting their kids go outside and their kids asking who's the missing kid on the, on the milk every morning. Yeah. And you can see, I mean, there's a lot of natural experiments of this that was going on because like in the U.S., for example, there's regional and political differences in consumption of information. So all these yeah. interesting natural experiments came on. So if you take, for example, pandemic response, if you are, let's say, in like the Northeast or the West Coast, you're much more likely to be following closely Twitter accounts and social media accounts that were uh really catastrophizing what's happening with the pandemic versus let's say you lived in like the American South where people largely moved on their sources of news, barely talked about the pandemic after a certain point. And it was a natural experiment, completely different psychological relationship with that. So, you know, around here in Washington, DC, even to this day, you have people that are essentially paralyzed with anxiety. Whereas you have other places where people haven't thought about this in over a year, you know, we can flip it around and see something similar that if you're living in, you know, suburban Washington, D.C. after the last presidential election, like, oh, good election. Like, I'm a fan of Biden. Glad he uh, won. I wonder what the inauguration is going to be like. But if you lived in other certain places, you were being bombarded with weird conspiratorial things about yeah. uh, voting machines that were being hacked by dark forces or whatever. And it was probably something that was so all consuming that it led hundreds of people to invade the capital. So these like these natural experiments where the the information that you're exposed to, even if the the scenario is the same, if you're exposed to right. information, it, it completely affects your how you perceive the world, what what your actions are like. And my my thesis here is just the based on the way the algorithms work for social media. And again, I don't think this is devious. It's just the way these algorithms end up playing out. If you're using social media as your main source of information and news, it's going to bias towards those negative scenarios on many different things that you're interested or involved in in your life. Right. It's like a primary election. No one, yeah. no one tacks towards the middle, right? You, you, you go to the extreme. And that, I, I guess if you looked at the stuff rising towards the top, you would probably find it deeply on, on both sides. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, look, I stay away from that now. I have a paper newspaper. I look at the front page. So I'm, hey, what's happening in the world? What just, right, Ukraine, right. this happened. Oh, I should know that whatever, uh, some major bill passed 10 minutes later, I'm done. I think people, they have this argument of, well, I'm going to be a bad citizen or this stuff. It's like, no, go, you know what? Go compensate by being very involved in your community civic life. If you want to be a right. good citizen, get involved at your town hall, get involved at the school, like be super involved. The CDC doesn't need your help right now. Yeah. The, uh, the the national election committee doesn't need your help right now. And and you couldn't again objectively. This is where I think is this huge paradox. We live in probably a time in history when objectively people are the nicest to each other that they've ever been. At least they're using words and not you know knives and guns and spears and whatever. But but it doesn't feel like that because every atrocity, everything from any little town that would have taken months or weeks to get to you or otherwise comes to you every day. And if you consume that, I just constantly, I just don't know how you function. Yeah. Yeah. And most people in most interactions are <laughs> nice. Most yeah. people in most online interactions, it's like the hundred year flood. 
So it's like in a social media interaction, again and again, you're being involved in interactions of an emotional peak and urgency that you would normally encounter maybe three times in your life. Yeah. You know, once in elementary school, when you got in a fist fight, once when, uh, whatever, someone was trying to rob you and it's unnatural to be exposed to that level of sort of outrage and urgency again and again. So it's like the hundred year flood happening every year. You're playing around with what our, our brain is, is wired for. So, you know, that's my message, just take a few months, like the internet won't miss you. And and that's probably a message for adults. The, The thing I really noticed with the teenagers is and and look, the whole world is feeding this. It is just even the notion of taking a picture. You know, I used to take pictures for myself, <laughs> for my for my album or otherwise. It just the staging of every picture so that it is more important how the world sees it just perpetuates this this thing that the perception is more important than the reality. It just it seems like everything is a stageable moment. It's not even it's not even if you're enjoying it at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, teenagers. There's multiple issues happening here. I mean, my yeah, yeah. my hope because I heard some of this from teenagers. They know it. Of- they know that they're happier if they put this thing when they go to camp. My kids go to overnight camp. Yeah. You know, 14, 15, 16, no phone for seven weeks. There's no missing it at all. Like it's it they would probably tell you they were happier, but then they come home and it's like, look, look. Which by the way is why I get you know frustrated when when I dive into in a professional capacity the debates in social psychology about well is social media really damaging to teenagers or not I, I wrote a piece for the new yorker last fall where i talked to four experts to on either sides and the thing i find sort of frustrating about that whole experience is that the teenagers will just tell you yes this is making me upset sad and hurting my mental health like we don't it it feels so kafka-esque that we have these yeah. old, you know, not old, but 50, 60 year old social uh, psychologist researchers going through these data sets, looking for these intricate signals about, well, are we properly controlling for this or that? Well, meanwhile, the teenagers all around them are like, this makes me depressed. This makes me anxious. All right. How about the fact that if you are a teenager, you see a picture of every party or event you were not invited to in real time. Like yeah. it, there's no way that that is helpful. To your psyche. Yeah. Or you're a teenage boy, you're 17, and you're exposed to a massively online video game that has been engineered, you know, up the wazoo to hit every single button in your head. You're like, I can't handle this. Like, I am not going to sleep. I'm not going to use the bathroom. It's an unfair fight. But the thing I was going to say that gave me some hope is that when I was doing the tour for digital minimalism, which is the book closest related to this, what I was hearing from more and more teenagers is that not using this technology is going to emerge or maybe emerging as the new counterculture. So, you know, being countercultural ahead of the trend is often, you know, I've been waiting 20 years for this. I kept saying, you know, it was once cool to have a Blackberry. I, you know, I, I keep waiting for it to be cool to like, you can't reach me. I I haven't seen it yet. (laughs) I've seen signals, but it's, well, I think it might, (laughs) it might be coming with teenagers. You might be seeing earlier signals than I'm seeing. Yeah. Well, because also think about it, the right trends are in place because what worked for teenage tobacco use, for example, like one of the things that really made a big hit on teenage tobacco use, this was when I was a kid in the 90s, was the ad council uh, hired a really fancy ad agency to do ads aimed at kids. And they really focused like, how do we, what ads can we aim at kids that's really going to impact teen smoking? They came with this campaign called the Truth Campaign. And you know what it was all about? It was all about 
the executives at the tobacco companies and how they were condescending to kids and manipulating the kids and like, yeah, we'll get these kids hooked on our product. These uncool executives, you know, wearing their suits and ties. And this is exactly where social media is going. You think any of the major social media figures right now, the Zuckerbergs of the world, uh, the Jack Dorsey's, potentially the Elon Musk, these are not figures that, you know, ahead of the trend, highly progressive young people are looking to, like, that's my hero. So right. the setup <laughs> is perfect for a zeitgeist shift. I mean, Facebook is basically losing all young people already. You yeah. see how quickly that happened. It was massive. And then the culture shifted around Zuckerberg and how people perceived him. And they have an exodus of young people. If it wasn't for them buying WhatsApp and Instagram and their international growth, it would have looked like a disaster much earlier. Twitter, the young people are like, I don't even know about this. This is gross. They're not involved yeah. with it. This is old people yelling at each other. Yeah, they're moving over the TikTok. All of this is positive, right? All this is positive, right? I think the, the positive in the meta sense that the position in the zeitgeist of a lot of these platforms and technologies is very contingent and precarious and young people are really quick to, to shift their interest. So that's the perfect setup now that we've shifted from Facebook to WhatsApp over to Instagram from to Snapchat. Now we're going over to TikTok. When people are moving all over the place and you're not really sure about the motives of the people running these companies, that's the perfect environment for it to be cool or countercultural for you to say, oh, I don't use these things. There's room for it in a way there wasn't early in the social media revolution where there was three platforms. And if you weren't on them, you were seen as eccentric. And I, and I know this from personal experience. That's no longer the case. Uh, people shift between platforms and quit platforms all the time now. So I, I, you know, I have a little bit of hope. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space, and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am, and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. Have you seen the new thing, Be Real? Have you heard about that? 
Yeah. I mean, look, this, I have heard about be real. People spend and, all day thinking about it or waiting for it, which was, which is the, the irony that I point out to well, at least it, my daughter. Yeah. I mean, look, I like the intention behind it, but it's, yeah. it, it's almost parodic. I mean, it is like a, a parody of techno solutionism gone awry. The intention is, you know, you need to focus more on your real life and show people about your real life. And of course, the right way to do that is to just live your real life. Right. And right. not have to right. put down the phone, not to have an app. So the metaverse is not going to fix our problems. Like what is your, we haven't talked about this, but I, I look at the mental health. I look at all the stuff because people are not having real human connection and whether, whether it's um, not cortisol, but what's the other thing? Uh, the one that you have in a, can't remember the chemical you have in a real uh, oxytocin. Oh, oxytocin. Yeah. Yeah. Oxytocin. I mean, the metaverse is not going to help any of this. It's going to make it all even worse. Don't you think? I don't know. I just read Matthew Ball's book last week, the metaverse. So <laughs> I'm up to speed now more on the, on the technologies here. I mean, I'm still trying to figure this out. Yes, you will get more oxytocin if you are in an environment where you have facial tracking and eye movement tracking, and you can yeah. kind of trick the brain to get more of it. I still don't buy, I'm not sure that I still buy this vision though, that it's inevitable that we're going to end up in these massively shared worlds that are 3D and digital with our helmets on, maybe I tend to expect it will be like it is today, very fragmented. You know, yeah. A lot of people are in Fortnite and Roblox and over in Minecraft. I, this is what happened with the web when the technology... Other people occurred. are out on their property that they got with the airport and the runway. They're on their property with the runway and their golf cart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think the, to me, I've, I've long thought that the bigger technological shift that's going to come out of this is more boring to describe, but way more impactful, which is going to be augmented reality, basically consuming the entire consumer electronics industry. So, so this, I think, is much more inevitable, is uh, getting reasonable form factor augmented reality, which means you can put a screen in your space anywhere you want it. Yeah, and once yeah. once we cross, there's a few uh, points you have to cross to make this uh, fully practical, but we're going to get there in five years, maybe 10. There's no longer any need to buy a phone. There's no longer any need to buy a TV. There's no longer any need to buy a, a laptop or a computer. It's all software in the cloud. I make a screen where I want it. If we want to watch a movie together, we put yeah, it I saw a prototype phone. of yeah. car windows. Uh, someone, one of the car companies, it was like car windows where you're, you could watch stuff on them. But I don't think people understand the degree to which this is going to be seismic because we're talking about entire industries collapsing. Like Apple's investing a huge amount of money in this. Why? If they don't win, they're out of business. On the software side, they want the software. Well, because if there will be no need for high-end hardware if there's only one piece of hardware you have to own. I don't need a sleek-looking phone or a sleek-looking laptop or a sleek-looking video game machine because I can put a screen anywhere. And all the hardware and software that's that's running is in a cloud somewhere. I don't need to own that. I don't need a, a graphic chip in my pocket. That can be in the cloud somewhere. I just need a good enough internet connection that I can actually just stream from wherever my computation is happening uh, what I want to see. Now, there are limits. I mean, there's real speed of light limitations to that. So there are some issues there. But I think that's what's going to be most disruptive. It's going to be this world in which reality is mixed. It's not that I am in the matrix. Right. But it's also like at many points, if not most of my day, there's elements of the world around me that isn't actually there, but it's actually more or less indistinguishable from things that actually are. And I don't really care about the difference. I think that's going to be a, an important shift, even if it's not as exciting as you know, Ready Player One. All right. Well, let's, let's rewind a bit to plain old boring uh, email. 
um, which still, still for a lot of us is, uh, you know, you know, see so your most recent book, which came out in 2021, interestingly, right. A world without email in the middle of the pandemic as people are probably slacking and emailing each other all day long. Like th- this book was needed for a long time. I, people don't talk about email addiction in the same way they talk about social media addiction, but I think it really is the kind of the work equivalent. Like, tell me about your motivation to write the book and like, what are a few of the key concepts that that people can understand in terms of what email has kind of done to their day and their productivity? Well, it was a follow-up to deep work. Work, so, yeah. Yeah, deep work was 2016 and it was talking. I still, I'm waiting for your Slack addendum book that just slides into the end of it. Well, and, and I'll say right off the bat, the title World Without Email, it, it's actually, the real title should be a world without the hyperactive hive mind workflow, which itself is a workflow enabled by yeah. many different digital <laughs> communication tools. So it's about Slack. It's about email. It's about text messaging. Uh, the message of the book is a little bit agnostic to the digital communication tool, but it was a follow-up to deep work because deep work was saying, hey, don't forget how valuable it is to actually give something sustained concentration. This is the real superpower, especially as the knowledge economy gets more competitive. And one of the big responses to that book is like, I can't even come close to finding time to do this. Why? Like, what's going wrong? If this is so valuable, why is the standard knowledge work environment one in which we've made it almost impossible to deep work? So that was the question that led to a world without email. And the 22nd summary of the answer is that it's an accident. So when digital communication, low friction digital communication first arrived in the front office, this was email arriving in the the mid to late 1990s, that's when it made its move to most office environments. It triggered as an unexpected side effect, a new way of collaborating that I call the hyperactive hive mind, where suddenly we can just figure things out on the fly with unscheduled back and forth messages. We were never able to do that before, but now I can just, let's shoot this, you shoot it back, we'll figure things out. And the uh, Frankenstein monster broke out of the lab. So once (laughs) we were able to do this, the volume of communication skyrocketed. And then what we ended up was in a state where we have dozens of these ongoing unscheduled conversations transpiring in our email inboxes or in Slack. They have to be serviced. If I wait all day to check my email, that's not going to work because this conversation over here, we need to go back and forth probably four or five times today to get an answer by the end of the day because I have to call back the client. You have a whole bunch of different conversations and they require different speeds and cadences, but they all look the same, right? They all look the same. Yeah. And so you have to check all the time. Yeah. So now you have to check all the time, which is a disaster because as I document in detail in that book, our brain cannot switch back and forth context like this. Not only do we have to check all the time, but the environment in which we're checking an email inbox or Slack channel is also a disaster because we have 15 unrelated conversations interleave. That is so hard for our brain. You know that sense of paralysis you get sometimes when yeah. you just look at your inbox? Overload. And- yeah. It's because our brain is functioned to take on one pursuit at a time, get the motivational circuit going, build a model, simulate what we're going to do. The the ventral striatum releases the chemicals that motivates action. We get a reward when we're done. We encode the memories. We move on to what's next. It cannot handle, here's 15 things we have to work on in in parallel. Can we think about all of them at the same time? And so it created a cognitive disaster and it's all an accident. There's no reason why this has to be the way we collaborate. It's just a least common denominator easiest possible answer to that question. The tool is there. So we started using it. So what is the fix? <laughs> it sounds hopeless. Well, so this is, <laughs> this then becomes the key is yeah. you're not going to fix this problem with inbox habits, right? Yeah. If I have 
all of these ongoing conversations that have to be serviced. And that is how work actually unfolds at my workplace. Simply saying, I'm going to check email twice a day or whatever is not going to work because these things have to happen. These decisions have to be made. They can't be made if you're not checking your inbox. So the only solution is to actually put in place alternative ways of collaborating, and they have to be specific for the different types of work you do in your company. It is the only solution. You have to get the collaboration out of these unscheduled messages and into something more structured. And there's not one solution. It's here's the six things I do in my job. Each of these six, we have to figure out What's the way we actually want to collaborate about this? We're I've seen some asynchronous kind of meeting solutions and some interesting things that are coming out. I don't know that any of them have hit mainstream yet, but well, I think be very wary of techno solutionism here as yeah. well. So there's this idea of the tool will fix it. I say forget the tool. Yeah. Figure out what you want to do. What's your process for this type of work? We produce right. a podcast episode every week. Here's the six things that have to happen. Here's the decisions that have to be made. Where does the information go? Here's the cadence. Here's how we do it. Yeah. When we do it. Yeah. And yeah. then ask, oh, what digital tools can help us implement this? Because you know what? 85% of the time, some combination of Google Docs, Dropbox, and email. I mean, email is great for delivering files or, or bulk delivery of yeah. information. Some combination of Google Doc, email, uh, and Dropbox usually is all you need. And sometimes you need more sophisticated tools, and it's fine. But this idea that like the key is Monday.com will adopt their process and it's going to work out. That's not what you need. What you need is to say, here are the things I do. How do we want to collaborate? And then there's other hacks as well. So for example, uh, what about things that pop up that require a short back and forth conversation, but they're they're one-off. It's not something that happens again and right. again. Everyone should have office hours every day. This hour, every day, I am available. Office is open. Zoom is on. Phone is on. Looking at my messages, whatever. I have a mentor who likes to say, I have an open door policy, but my door is not always open. He And he said, look, I have this time. And you come talk about your problems during the time. And by the way, half the time when people don't have the ability to ask right away, he said they solve it themselves, yeah. right? Like I, we made it too easy to to check in rather than to, to think for five minutes. And then you can start doing it and get more advanced. Yeah. Then you can introduce the notion of reverse meetings, which I think cures the asymmetry in summoning people to meetings. So now if I need to get the opinion of five people about something, instead of making all five of them come and spend 30 minutes at a meeting with me, I can go to each of their office hours and talk to each of them five minutes at a time. I do the work. Instead of yeah. making them, so you, you cure the symmetry. What about teams? Well, you can do docket clearing meetings with the team twice a week, one hour. We all get together. We have this shared doc we grow in between meetings of like all the things we have to figure out or discuss or needs to be done. We go through it one, two, three, four, five for each of those things. Can we just do it right now? Are you going to take it? All right, let me update the doc. You're working on it. Do you need anything from the rest of us to do that? Okay, you need this from Bob. I'll write that there. And that's it. Right. You could separate urgent from important. I, similar, there's one thing I do that I think aligns with that, that I learned over the years because, you know, my ADD is when I have a question or I have a thought, I, you know, I ask it to the person, then it just started new threads. And so when I had my one-on-ones, I just kept a, a OneNote with everyone's name on my team. And it was like, oh, I got to ask Cal that, boom, okay, I put it on there. And now 24 emails are now grouped into five discussions of four topics when we have our next one-to-one. So it sounds like that's the kind of restructure that you're talking about. Well, that exact idea is in my book. You have the, you know, the list for the different people that you, you have any sort of regular meetings or who hold office hours, things to talk about them. Uh, So I, I talk about in the book at the time I was a director of graduate studies for my department at Georgetown. And so 
you know, I met with my department chair frequently. There's lots of issues that I needed the department chair's help on. Just have a list, things to talk to Nitin about next time you see him. You know, it makes a big difference. And that's the magic of docket clearing. Oh, here's something our group needs to look at. Here's the shared doc we're all going to go through at the next meeting. I throw it on there. It's out of my mind. So the way we get things off yeah. our mind now is we just throw it on the someone else's plate. We do this obligation hot potato thing, and then they don't want to deal with it because they don't have a system to keep track of it. So like, what I'll do is ask a unnecessary clarification question. Why? Because now it's back on your plate. And then I don't have, so it's everyone just not wanting to keep track of things because they don't have a place to put them. They trust. The only thing they trust is their inbox and their calendar. So everyone's doing obligation hot potato so that they don't have to have the stress of here's 10 things that I, it's up to me. I'll just say, well, what about this? Or I don't know about this. And you send these terrible, vague messages, but you know what? It takes it off your plate. So that's all the nonsense we have to get around. So this is how we solve the problem. There, there's another power dynamic I've noticed in this problem, and that is subordinates tend to operate on a last-in, first-out basis. They just assume because you ask them something that it's the most important thing. And so clarifying, when do you need this or otherwise? I mean, sometimes it's like, oh, I need a flight to whatever in November. And, and they're like, okay. And then you realize they jump on that and they put down the work for the board meeting tomorrow. And you're like, no, no, that, you know. But again, it's the leader's responsibility to convey that. I would oftentimes have my EA sort of read back to me the list at the end of the week and I would reprioritize it for them because I saw that trend a lot. I think a lot of times we jump on something because someone asks us about it and in a power dynamic, we think they're expecting us to react right away. Well, and it's part of why I'm a fan of poll-based systems being used more generally where you have a, a central transparent store of things that need to be done and the relevant information that people executing only do one thing at a time. And when they're done, they pull something new from the store of things to be done. And then you have semi-regular times where we can actually get together and sort of agree about some prioritization there. But it, it forces people to have to confront, here's all the things that need to be done. It's not just on your plate. It's a terrible way to do task assignment of like, let me just, let's, everything should just exist on people's individual plates. No, no, it should be in a central place where you work on, I can only work on one, when I'm done with this, I'll pull the next thing. And maybe we should have some discussions about relative priority. It's the way software developers do feature development because they figured out a long time ago, it doesn't work if you just keep sending more features to the programmer. We also want this. We also want that. We also want this. They paralyze. It's true for almost any knowledge work task, but we're comfortable right now with this ad hoc lowest common denominator way of working, this hyperactive hive mind where we just throw things around with email and Slack. Hey, you take this, you know, it's off my plate and it's informal and it's haphazard and it's hot potato and people get completely overloaded. I mean, I've written article after article about this in the New Yorker recently about the human brain. It's not meant for that. It's not meant to have 30 things on a list. It's meant to have one thing that it's working on and then finishes and then says what's next. Yeah, it, it also, all of that obfuscates the 80-20 rule, which usually proves itself to be true, that only 20% of those things you're working on are going to derive 80% of the outcome. So the rest is <laughs> just getting in the way. Yeah, yeah. I think there's revolution. There's revolutions to be had in knowledge work and knowledge work productivity. And we haven't had it yet because all of this is always slow. And you can look at almost any other period where there's a, a major new industry or major technological disruption in the industry, it takes forever to figure out what's the right way to integrate this. How do we actually do this type of work? And so, so you might say, oh my God, we've had a digital office since the late 1990s. How do we not have this figured out yet? But the other way of looking at that is, oh, we've only had a digital office since the late 1990s. Of course, we haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. 
some things move, move fast, some things move slow. So earlier this year, you wrote a New Yorker piece on, on the hot topic of, of burnout. I won't even go into quiet quitting and, and shortening the workplace. And, and you actually argued that, that the solution to burnout is not the four-day work week, which I know a lot of companies are, are piloting, but something you describe as slow productivity. Can you explain what your research found and why you think that that's actually the correct solution to the problem? Yeah, I mean, the, the work week is relevant to an industrial context. I mean, the 40-hour the work week, for example, that's standardized in the U.S. for hourly work, this comes out of the Fair Labor Standard Practices Act from the 1930s. It's very aimed at hourly-style industrial work, where the only knob you have to turn, essentially, to change your work experience or the impact your work experience is how many hours you do it, because the actual work you're doing is very prescribed. You know, I'm on an assembly line. I do the door assembly. So the, the main knobs you have is how much work do I actually do and how much yeah. I get paid for it? Knowledge work, most of this is not relevant. I mean, as we were talking about, knowledge work is about these implicitly haphazardly assigned piles of tasks that are on your plate to get done. Right. An assembly line, generally, if you put run the assembly line for 40 hours, it's going to have 25% more productivity than running it for 30 hours, right? Yeah. That is a very different thing than knowledge work. Yeah, you don't in a factory just look at some people and be like, hey, look, I mean, we need 30 cars from you. Like, figure it out. No, you're like, okay, you do this and you can, here's how many, yeah. how many hours are you going to work, whatever. Knowledge work, the work week is at best a suggestion for when you can expect people to, when it's appropriate, maybe to schedule meetings with people. But otherwise, it's task execution. You have things on your plate that you need to get done. That's often haphazard. Whether or not we work on Friday or not doesn't change that. So the, the, the deeper issue, I thought, in this New Yorker piece was how much work is on people's plates? How many meetings are you having a day? Well, right. how many meetings? And also, how many things are you juggling? Yeah. Are you yeah. juggling 15 different things? Yeah, because everything you're juggling brings with it overhead. So as you are just alluding to, almost any non-trivial project is going to bring with it collaborative overheads. So you're going to have to have some sort of regular meetings to talk about it. There's going to be some amount of email or Slack to gather information or make decisions about it. So as you pile more and more things onto your plate, they're all generating this overhead concurrently. So if you have 15 things on your plate versus five, it makes a difference because in the first scenario, you have three times more meetings going on, three times more email going about. That's all taking away time for actually executing the work. So you fall farther behind and that list grows even longer. And so to me, my pitch there was, this is what we have to fix. The number of things on someone's plate at the same time, that's where you're going to make a difference. I don't care if you tell me Friday is off or not. What I much rather would have is a much more transparent system of work assignment that makes sure that I'm only ever working on two things at a time and I pull in something new and I'm done so I don't fall into an overhead spiral. That's going to be much more effective. And, and so out of that was born this bigger philosophy uh, that I ended up calling slow productivity, which has expanded. I'm writing a book about it now. Um, I was going to ask you that. Yeah. yeah. So that becomes just the first part of the book, Do Fewer Things. It also has uh, working at a natural pace and obsessing over quality. But I, it, it led to this project of knowledge work, especially non-entry-level knowledge work. We don't have a reasonable definition of productivity so we just default back towards. So like, I was going to ask you that. So I mean, is there downside to it? So the comp a lot of companies that are doing it. First of all, anytime you do something, if it doesn't work, it's almost impossible to take back. So I'm very interested to watch how that's going to work um, for companies for whom. But I've heard a lot of companies come out and say, "Look, it is. It, uh, we've seen no drop in productivity, and we moved to four days." Is that just a 
correlation causation problem where they've just removed the way that they did that was remove all the things they didn't need anyway. And and people uh, have worked better across the, the five work days. I mean, a little bit. I think the more cynical thing is they, they don't have any idea how to measure productivity anyway. <laughs> so they say that. But you know, I don't know what well, that means. Well, maybe their sales or their margins or some of their outputs haven't haven't changed, right? Yeah. So, so it's I think I mean it's fine, but I think mainly what four hour work week is, I mean the four day work week is, yeah. is a signaling mechanism from companies. It, it's what ping pong tables and open offices were in the early two thousands. Is you know we need talent. Which I totally debunked now. I mean Adam, yeah. I saw him yesterday. The open office thing has been one of the worst productivity experiments in in, in the last couple of decades. It doesn't work. I mean, there's a there's a great study in open offices where they took the yeah. same company right before they moved to an open office so they could measure the same people before and after. And when they moved to the open office, they talked to each other less. Uh, yeah. They sent I'll more email. Put on their headphones because they're so distracted. Yeah, no one wanted to talk to each other because they would bother everyone else. So they sent more emails and on all they, they set up all these metrics of productivity ahead of time that were relevant to the team. They all went down. So yeah. open offices, like Silicon Valley did open offices as a signaling mechanism. We are different than Fidelity. So yeah. come work for us, talented, you know, computer programmer. It's it's all about signaling that we're a disruptive workplace so we can get better talent, which is a very rational thing for the companies to do. They live and buy by talent, but it had nothing to do with productivity. Uh, and I think this is what's happening with the with the uh, four day work week. We're not ready to change the days. We need to figure out first how do we actually collaborate? Why are we sending and receiving 100 emails a day? Why did I have eight straight hours of Zoom meetings the other day? Like our fundamental processes for work are haphazard and broken. Let's yeah. fix those to say, oh, we'll just work one day less. Yeah. It's, it's ignoring the fundamental issues. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And again, I think that having been part of benefits you know, that have been added and taken away. This is one when you don't even announce it as a trial that if it doesn't work, you're just going to have a really hard time. You know, if you're having problems or it doesn't, there's a struggle in client service businesses where people are like, look, I don't want to not be able to reach anyone on a Friday. Like I, I've, I've noticed that the majority of companies that have adopted it, not all of them, but you know, if they're surfboard company or the original and they want to not produce the surfboards on Friday, like it doesn't really impact the supply chain as a wholesaler. They can make that decision. In the services world, 
it gets a little more complicated when people say, I'm just, I'm not here to, to answer your call. Yeah, no. And, and, and I agree with that. I mean, again, I don't mind if it's five days, if those five days I'm not burnt out and overloaded. Yeah. If those five days, I don't have to check an inbox once every five minutes. It's, I don't think people's main issue is I, I need a longer weekend. It's that when I'm working, I have to check my email every five minutes. It's that I have 15 ill-defined projects that all I'm doing is doing meetings and talking about, and I can't make progress on anything. People don't mind work. They do mind being overloaded. So we're, again, it's missing the forest for the trees, right? It's like, we need to actually, we need to actually fix the leak in the boat. And instead, we're, I don't know what we're doing. We're, we're trying to get people better life preservers or something. Like you got to fix We're just switching, yeah, to from a square boat to a... So do you believe in the rule of three? Three. I've heard a lot of coaches and leadership in terms of three tasks, three goals, three... Like that there's some, there's some magic in that. Well, I, I agree in the, in the rule of something that we agree on. I mean, this is the issue, is that yeah. it should be clear. I am working on this many things. So if you want to try to give me something else, you have to one in, one out, right? One in, one out. Like this is how many things on your plate. I mean, it's one of the reasons why you can't like labor organization is difficult in knowledge work is because uh, there's nothing that's been surfaced to actually organize around. So if you force, for example, if a knowledge work company says, you know, here is our system for assigning work and how many things we think it's fair for you to work on at the same time. And here's how our poll system works and, and how, how like the collaboration systems work. Now you have something to look at. Now you have something to argue about. Now you have something to point to and say, look, you say we should be working on six things. It really should be three. Like the six isn't working. But when you don't have anything explicitly identified, when it's all implicit and ad hoc, it takes place between the margins of email and Slack messages, how work is assigned and, and how work is tracked and reviewed. There's nothing you can point at the reform. And so what do you fall back on? Incredibly crude measures. It's Everyone is burnt out, right? They're yeah. burnt out by having yeah. too much to do. Uh, the pandemic made it worse because it raised unexpectedly workloads while also reducing the support you need to actually be able to concentrate on work. And all we're throwing at it is the crudest possible solutions like where we work. So are we remote or not? or how many days we work. So we're, we're focused on these incredibly crude measures, not the like, what is the nature of our work? How can we make sure I never have eight hours of Zoom meetings again? Something is broken. So I'm just not a fan of these blunt, crude measures of, you know, France tries this a lot. France, uh, they try to pass these laws yeah. to reform knowledge work. Like, this is why they have no startups in France because and like, it doesn't, yeah. and it doesn't work. You can't do this. It's, it's too crude, right? So they'll come in, they try to pass a loss and you can't expect right. someone. I mean, it's more complicated than that, but you can't email people after five. Right. I mean, okay. It's way more complicated than that, the actual law, but like the issue is not, it's not like, okay, you're making me work overtime and not paying me. It's, it's how are we organizing our work in such a way that I need to answer that email because this is how decisions are being right. made. You know, or sometimes, I mean, you know, someone comes in with a, and needs a pitch for $10 million, you know, people want the flex work. And I've said, it's got to go both ways. You know, you got a $10 million proposal that they need by tomorrow and, and you call them the troops. That's what you do in a, in a startup or a high growth business. Yeah. So we, we need more reform. I mean, again, yes, we got to get past the crude and we got, so let's say for you, some terminology here, we got to move past the macro to the micro. Yeah. We got to move past the like, do I get in my car to go to work and get to what's happening in my inbox? I really think that's where most of the action is. That's where most of the room for improvement is. I want to I want to go back to something you said earlier because I, I, I we didn't get too deep into it, but I saw an article you posted recently saying that you know TikTok's disruption of uh, Meta and, and and really Instagram, you know, you think it's going to lead to a crashing of the social media giants and generally why? 
Why do you believe that? And what what comes after? I mean, if I'm a stock picker, I, I'm expecting you to tell me like who's who's going to TikTok TikTok afterwards based on the trends you're seeing. Well, so yeah, here's my argument there. This was another New Yorker piece. Is pre-TikTok, the thing that cemented the social media, the big players in social media. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, Instagram's a part of Facebook, whatever. Yeah. But what cemented them as having this impregnable position is that their curation was based off of a hard-won social graph. So Twitter does a very good job of surfacing things that are interesting because it has this massive social graph of interesting people who follow each other. And the, the result of hundreds of thousands of retweet decisions uh, really does a good job of surfacing what's interesting stuff and the right things. It works really well. Facebook has this billion person uh, social graph of friend relationships they can use to really help uh, show you, okay, here's what your friends are reading or things your friends like. And that was a, uh, a competitive advantage that had a real first mover protection to it. It became very difficult once Facebook had 100 million followers to start a new Facebook because there more people they had, the more useful they were. Same thing with Twitter. They got all the interesting people. They got the big graph. All the people trying to do tweet like companies failed because there wasn't enough people on it. There wasn't a thick enough network. So you go to Parler or what have you, and you're just not seeing that much interesting stuff. The signal right. noise ratio is much smaller. TikTok does not depend on a social graph. It doesn't care about that. It just takes in all of the videos from people who are making them and to figure out what to show you as an individual user is entirely algorithmic and it's not based on social connection. Yeah, and, and Instagram is so stuck because again, each thing serves a different purpose and Instagram yeah. has tried to mimic it and they're pissing off more of the people who seem to like you know, the old well, school Instagram. Yeah. So this is what's happening is, okay, so face, uh, TikTok in the moment is very successful. So that by just for a lot of reasons- It's just whatever's most popular. It's yeah. super, super simple, yeah. But it is causing Facebook, it's causing Instagram and potentially Twitter that we'll see to try to be more like TikTok. But the way they're trying to be more like TikTok is they're moving away from their social graph. Right, and so they're not showing you the stuff from your friends. You're not yeah. seeing the birthday parties and the stuff. Yeah. That puts them into the competitive arena with every other source of entertainment. It gets rid of their protection, their protection racket of, we have this giant social network. You don't goes away. And I was like, once you're in that arena, you're not going to survive 10 years. Right. I mean, TikTok's it'll be around for a while, then it will go away. It'll, it'll have its moment. It'll leave. There's no buy-in there. Like, so anyone else can create when you're just algorithms trying to curate stuff without needing the social graph. So I think the whole arena of digital distraction is going to have a sort of Cambrian explosion type period. Many more competitors, uh, many fewer long-term dominant players because there's no competitive advantage that cements people into position where they can't be competed against when you're just purely algorithmic. It's going to be much more of a free-for-all. So it's going to be hard to pick a stock because things will rise and explode. Yeah. Something else will rise and there'll be 17 niche things to come around. And I think all of that is Better. I think the 10 year period where three networks could dominate because no one could catch up to their social graph gave them too much power. And I think it held down innovation and interestingness uh, in the internet experience. So all of this stuff is going to shatter. It's a Cambrian explosion of, of social frenetic digital distraction energy. And I think that's better than having three companies, including you know Facebook being one of the most valuable companies in the history of the world. I don't think that's good for the internet. I think we need 500,000 Facebook type things, servicing different niches, coming and going, innovating. Hopefully we're going to go back to a period like that for a while. So, right. They don't need the social graph. It could just be, this is our theme or this is where we focus. But it is interesting. I've watched Instagram. I mean, again, when you try to be someone else's business model, 
eventually you will be cannibalized, but I feel like for the people who wanted to see what their friends were doing or used it to figure out what their friends were doing, seeing random monkey videos now is destroying the existing value prop for them. And so they've yeah. gotten themselves really stuck in the in, in no man's land. And what can you do? This is why Twitter is the only chance of surviving this is because the, the Musk bid fell through. They're still small enough that it's possible for them to go private, which I think is the only way to assist. What can Meta do? Their stock yeah. price is falling. Yeah, they're losing because TikTok has this cool experience. Their stockholders aren't going to tolerate, you know, we're going to have negative growth because yeah, they want yeah. their investments to go up. So it's Meta has no choice but to try to chase in the short term what is working as to try to shore up falls in their quarterly earnings. Uh, so they have no choice but to rush towards their oblivion. I mean, it's a terrible situation to be in if you're that company. Twitter could survive this if they went back private and basically said, we're going to do what we do. And we know that we're not going to become a $500 billion a year Facebook type company. Who cares? Uh, if we streamline our operations, we can be like a very comfortable, you know, spinoff $500 million a year profit, like a very nice private company. And we serve our niche. They have a chance of surviving, but only if they're able to double down on what they do, I'm not trying to get going. You must have predicted that was going to be my next, my next question was going to be about this. Um, you know, uh, Elon Musk is still embroiled in this in this controversy. I, I'm not sure which way it will go, but you know, he seems very focused on fixing Twitter and improving discourse on the on the platform. Is that even possible? Like, can you fix discourse? Or, or you know, I, I know he's focused on the bots, but is that is the vision you just shared? You think similar to what he is hoping to do with it? Well, so my, I mean, my take on Twitter is I think they can survive, but it's not that I think that that's important. I mean, my yeah. argument about Twitter, the, the piece I wrote during the height of the sort of uh, Musk uh, imbruglio was um, the issue here is cultural. The issue here is that all the media reporters writing about this see Twitter as the digital town square, and it's not. We got to stop thinking about it as being this thing that's central to our democracy or central to our civic life. It's not the town square. Oh, it's just like fast news, right? I, well, yeah. And it's become more like a coliseum. Like really what's going on on Twitter now is you have different teams and they just, uh, they, you make big outrageous claims then fight with each other. And it's right. interesting, right? This is why they, it's, it's an addictive platform because I mean, the coliseum was interesting. It's interesting to see like, oh, here's this writer, you know, who just made this claim and then these activists are attacking them. And then this person is like, they're attacking them back. And it's, it's all interesting combat, but let's be honest about what this is. This is not the Roman Senate. This is the Roman Coliseum. And it's, it's, once we see Twitter as that, it's an entertainment source where we get to watch smart people shatter their glasses okay. as they do combat. And it's something that most people don't care about, but some people find that entertaining, then fine. But the coverage of Elon Musk taking it over made it seem like the you know the US Congress was about to be privatized or something like this and I think it's because uh, media people are very online and so to them it feels like Twitter is the pulsing heart of the the ongoing American conversation for 98% of Americans they could care less they don't go on Twitter uh, they don't know what's going on so that's been my call in all of this was like we just need to pay less attention to Twitter that's the key now we don't need to fix it it's not Shouldn't it be so important in the first place? And in fact, it's not the most people. It has disproportionate importance because the small number of people who happen to control the levers of what we see on TV and on news, like the media personalities, for them, it's really important. And so it gives us this false impression that this is somehow vital. I don't think it is. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the Coliseum. The one thing I've seen that Twitter seems to do better than any other source is that when something is happening in real time, you can usually find out about it more on Twitter than... Yep. 
than anywhere else. But that's that's sort of like a early detection system. Um, yeah, it, it does that well because of that that distributed algorithm of all the retweet decisions. It's human in the loop curation. So it's actually fantastic at that. But I had this conversation with a, a former CEO of a media company before, and he was like, I need, you know, I can get up to date news. And I was like, yeah, but what happens if you have to wait three more hours to get the AP wire version of the news? It's like, that doesn't matter. Right. You probably argue you're better off calming your brain down and not chasing it down. <laughs> Than, than needing the real-time dopamine that actually 90, just, yeah. 99% of things that happen, I'd rather read the article. You're better off reading the article the next day in the newspaper. You don't need, you know, people's live accounts of what may or may not be be happening. I bet you if you also mapped accuracy and speed that, that there is an inverse correlation to whatever you hear earliest is probably not vetted or thought out or accurate. Yes. And that's become the uh, the breaking news function of Twitter itself is becoming corrupted because more and more of Twitter uh, is being subsumed by this, this William Golding Lord of the Flies type dynamic where it's teams angling for ground against yeah. other teams. So now the breaking news just becomes immediately a place for the different teams to try to jockey for a position. And then soon they're just attacking each other about how they're talking about the breaking news. I mean, try to watch. And this is where we're all spending our time. And then we're saying that, you know, we don't have enough, you know, five work days aren't enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to be on Twitter. You don't need, there's so few people that need to be on Twitter. I get, there's a small number of businesses. Media, maybe for the media. Yeah. They're content focused and you, sh- you maybe you publish things on Twitter. I have some friends who do like really great, like explainer threads, but you don't ever need to be reading Twitter. <laughs> you know, just Have you done any timekeeping or seen any experience like on how much people misperceive like how they spend their time or or if they realize what percent of their life was going to this at the same time yeah. that they say they don't have time to do things that are important yeah so i mean there's there's two issues here one is yeah we see this when people put tracking software on their phone so i mean this was widespread of course when the iPhone Apple turned on the screen time feature. Yeah. It was just a shock for a lot of people. There was a, a software before that I wrote about in digital minimalism uh, before screen time was turned on. There was a software you could download that did something similar. And, and I talked a lot about the surprise people had. So yeah, people do widely, wildly underestimate and then they see those estimates and it's scary. But two, it's not just the total time that an app is loaded. I mean, what happens to your three-hour block in the morning that you're trying to do something important when at minute 15, you see the the highly sort of arousing, outraged Twitter thread about something, then you go down a rabbit hole for 15 minutes. Even if you turn off Twitter, you've lost that ability to write your proverbial poetry. So, I mean, I think the, the impact of the context switching well ripples out beyond the actual time that you're looking at these apps. I mean, like that's the issue with email, for example. Uh, people learned about 15 years ago, don't keep your email literally open next to the thing you're doing. Like we stopped doing that. Turn yeah. off the notifications. We stopped doing that. Like it used to be, bing, let me go check my email. So, so they think like I'm good now, I'm single tasking, but they go and check the inbox every 10 minutes it's almost just as bad because right. each of those checks is going to generate a- It takes like 17 effect. minutes to regain your concentration or something like that. Exactly. So so it's not just the total amount of time. I care about the frequency. So there's like this great study that Rescue Time did, the time tracking software did uh, with their data set. They hired some data scientists to really try to analyze this data set they had. And one of the ways they checked the impact of email is instead of just counting how many times people loaded email, they divided the day into five-minute chunks. And then they labeled each five-minute chunk, was there an inbox check in this chunk or not? So the idea was if if somewhere in this five-minute chunk, you checked your email, then we'll see that as like a non-productive chunk because you have this context switch. And then they just added up 
all right, so how many five minute chunks didn't have uh, an email chat? Which was basically a, a green five minute chunk is just you just stay on task for five minutes. Five minutes, five minutes. And if you added that up for the average user, it was less than an hour total, not right. an hour contiguously. An hour in, in the whole day. Hour, yeah, you couldn't find more than an hour of total time in which you weren't within just a couple of minutes from an inbox check. So like the answer to how much are people checking email, if you look at a study like that, is functionally speaking, constantly. I just don't think that people realize what, what it is costing them. Like you said before, and that's kind of how I so, use social media, but you know, I post an article, I post a thing. I had one of the top 10 articles on LinkedIn this week about what Gen Z really wants in the workforce from an old Gen Xer. And, but you know, there's tons of comments and there's this, but I have learned, like, I just, thank you X. Like I do not, I do not start a Twitter war or a LinkedIn war or content war. There's no worse use of your time as a human being. I agree. I mean, it, it's like <laughs> engaging a Twitter roar on like yeah. something unrelated to you. That's right there up there on the list of like, I think I'm going to try to knock old ladies down as they walk by in the street. Like in terms of utility <laughs> yeah. to society right, and how right. it makes you feel, it's, it's like pretty similar. Or, or yourself. I, I just think people, are, I've heard a lot of people when they get a coach, they're just saying they don't have time. They're lying to themselves. Like, like you could write a book in the time that you spent looking at the food that other people, you know, eat over a, a year, a pictures of it. Like when you put it into those sort of terms for people, it has a cost. In fact, I would, I would put it this way. Forget the total minutes you look at social media. If you're what I call like a regular social media user, so you check in and out on social media throughout the day at like whatever reasonable yeah. rate, like you basically may have eliminated from your life, you know, the ability with any consistency to do high level mental work. So forget the time. It's yeah. like you've, You've, uh, you're taking dumb pills. Like you're not going to write a smart book. You're not going to write good code. You're not going to come up with like the new idea that's going to innovate the industry. None of that's going to happen because your brain is kept at this constant state of agitation where that's impossible. You know, I mean, it's like being an athlete where you're like, yeah, I smoke, but I don't smoke all the time. Like I just smoke every like 30 minutes or something like that. <laughs> you know, the, the effect of always smoking is your body can no longer perform. I mean, we're doing the same thing to our minds. There's, there's so much about our life that we miss out on when we, uh, we, we poison our mind that way. And I get social media didn't, it's not de facto that it has to be this source of unsettling poison. There is times when it wasn't, but whether we, the techno optimists wanted this to be true or not, it's where it converged. And it is the experience of these platforms right now. I mean, again, maybe in a counterfactual world, uh, social media goes another way and it's, it's like it was in 2007. And it's like high-fiving your friends and, and bringing democracy to the Middle East. But it didn't stay that way. And, and the reality of where these platforms are right now is that it's poison. It's, it's, it's cognitive smoking. Cognitive poison. I like that term. I, I'm curious because just to what you said, I, I know when digital minimalism came out, you had a lot of your readers try this experiment called the, the digital declutter, right? They removed uh, all, all the apps and stuff from their smartphones and they kind of went on a little, a little detox to then they came back on. I know I know initially there were good results. Two to three years later, like what do you think the impact on have you have you done a follow-up in terms of how that was how that changed people's behavior in the long run? I think the the main thing I've learned given the time since that has come out is that you have to think about the declutter as something you do on a semi-regular basis. Okay. So it's like it has to be an, an annual house cleaning. Right. And you have a couple of years, the pandemic threw a lot of people off and then they, but they had the tool, they knew what to do. So by the time they got to, you know, June, 2020, like, okay, yeah. I need to do this again. Cause the key of the declutter is it's not a detox. It's not, Oh, if you just get away from this for a while, you'll be cured. I think that's nonsense. Like you would never tell an alcoholic, like, here's my detox plan. Don't drink for a month and then just go back to what you're doing before. It's like, what's the point? 
So the key of the declutter is that while you're away from these tools, A, you very aggressively experiment with alternative, higher quality activities. So you fill in the gaps. And then B, when you're done, you build this really specific intentional plan of what technologies am I bringing back? Why? How am I going to use them? Those rules will shift over time. That's what I discovered. Because you're situation in life shifts over time. The tools that are available shifts over time. New things slip onto your horizon that weren't there the last time you did the declutter. So think about this. I think once a year, once every two years, that's probably the right way to think about it, is that you have to keep stepping back, updating your decisions about how you want to spend your time, updating your rules about technology, go forward, repeat, go forward, repeat. Yeah, you know, I mean, the analogy is is prescient because I was just thinking we, we've been doing a a home declutter. We've been going one through one of these, you know, five year deep things. And look, we throw out the stuff that we don't want or doesn't service anymore, but that we had to maintain. And then just when you're cleaning something in general, it, with all this stuff removed, it's easier. We've lowered the sort of maintenance thing. So yeah, it, it, it's a good it's a good analogy. Yeah, no, I, I recommend it. All right, Cal. So when when should we expect the uh, slow productivity book? Well, I'm I mean, you better slowly. take your time on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <okay>. yeah. <laughs> 2027. Come on. <laughs> I'm working. Um, I don't know. That's a good question. I, so I'm aiming to finish it in early winter. So I don't know. What, so you 2024? Know, 2024. Yeah. Maybe maybe something like that. Hopefully there'll be, there'll be cardboard and hardcovers uh, paper available by then. <laughs> it, trust me, man. I know all about those issues. Uh, we've been trying to update. You know, I have a planner I sell and we've been trying to do some updates on yeah. it. And it takes forever. Because yeah. Yeah, there's no paper. People who aren't in publishing don't realize this, but basically there's no paper and there's no uh, free printing presses. So it's like a real big issue. Like it's really a big issue. It, right. And then the one thing, if you went, the hardcover world still operates on this manufacturer, box, ship, boat. You know, the, the paperback world, I think, is mostly now edge printing from wherever it is. But, but it's, it's like dealing in two totally different centuries, um, yeah. <laughs> either one of them. Well, that's interesting because I don't have, yeah, most of my books are all still in hardcover. So I'm not as familiar with the, with the paperback world in hardcover. It's just no printers. Yeah. Most of the paperback stuff is almost like, I, I mean, I think someone with Amazon, they have an on demand, like you, you order 10 copies and they they'll print 10 copies. Yeah. And, and I've actually, my big business idea is I don't know why CVS and, and the pharmacies can't do that with the cards, right? There's always two funny ones and 20 horrible ones and and the funny ones are all gone and the horrible ones are left particularly as you get closer to valentine's day like like give me a sample of all of them and then find a way to print them you can have the whole aisle back all right yeah got, I, mean, I, I think the reality is i know a, a guy who runs an old-fashioned press it's like it's actually harder than you think to do good to printing yeah. they have these big machines with these plates in them to do those cards yeah. and it's we haven't figured out how to do that cost effectively yeah, maybe they just need better market testing. Like it's because it is it is the ninety five five rule with cards, and you could see it. You could see you're like, oh, that must have been the good one. Yeah. <laughs> that row's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe we'll get there. I mean, this is what everyone thought when the internet came along: is we would just print everything locally at home, like newspapers would just automatically yeah. print out the newest copy, and uh, all those prognosticators missed. Like, well, maybe we'll just read it online. So, <laughs> yeah, that hasn't worked out. <laughs> yeah, who knows? Well. Like, we thought we'd just be printing all books at our house, and, and yeah, I don't know. We like. There's a craft to it. I get there's a craft to press printing a, a good book. I guess it's hard to do well. You need big machines. I don't know. Big machines, uh, trucks, boats. Trucks. Yeah. All, all, boats. Yeah. All that old school stuff. So, Cal, where can people, uh, what's the best place to find about you? I know not on social media uh, and your work and your, and your books. Yeah. Not on social media. I have a newsletter at calnewport.com. 
uh, once a week of an essay on all these ideas about trying to live and work more deeply. And then I have a podcast, Deep Questions, that comes out every week. Um, I now have videos. So if you're a, a watcher instead of a listener, videos of every full episode and clips of all the popular... I answer questions on the show, so all the most popular questions. That's all on YouTube now. It's youtube.com slash Cal Newport Media. So you can, you can go right to highlighted clips or watch full episodes on there as well. All right, great. Well, Cal, thanks for returning to the show. Uh, your, your insights feel more relevant with each day that passes uh, in society and in the workday these days. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I, I enjoy it. Enjoy it as always. And, and hopefully we don't have like some other major worldwide cataclysm happen soon after <laughs> I uh, sign off with you. <laughs> well, well, we'll have you back when in 2030, when slow productivity comes out. I think, I think that's really the only way you can get credibility for that book is if it takes you seven or eight years to, to write it. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. You can write a different one in between, but that one has to just take a while. Yeah. It has to be 45 pages long but like beautifully printed and like hand calligraphied and everything. Yep. That's the only Perfect. way. <laughs> Someone I know just told me that they, they, they want to write a book and they want to write 10 copies for $1 million each. They want to totally upend the, the book model. I was like, that's, that's interesting. It's a small market, but you, you, you could try it. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it makes sense on paper. Why not? Yeah. Get to the Literally. Same place. All right. Well, you can learn more about Cal and his work on the episode page at robertglazer.com. Uh, thank you again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.